Philemon, that's um, right after Titus and right before the book of Hebrews. And if you need to, you can look in your table of contents. Um, Philemon's one of those books in the Bible that you can easily skip over and, and have a hard time finding. Um, so it's right after Titus and right before Hebrews. And uh, for context, I'm going to um, just read from uh, the first verse to down to uh, 16. So, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention, mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the full knowledge of every good thing which is in you for the sake of Christ. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have much boldness in Christ to command you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather plead with you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I plead with you for my child Onesimus, of whom I became a father in my chains, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is my very heart, whom I intended to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but voluntarily. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this short letter, this personal letter, and that you orchestrated all the events that um, would take place so that this letter would be written and be uh, preserved for our benefit. To think of all the personal relationships and the things going on in the church at that time. This lesson about forgiveness and reconciliation, about fellowship, about making peace with one another. Lord, help us to glean from these principles, these teachings. Help us to apply them to our own lives. And please guide us according to your good and perfect will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, as we began looking at this short letter of Paul's last week, I commented that, just as most of you know, that Philemon is... The premier passage or book in the Bible on the topic of forgiveness. And yet, it doesn't even mention the word forgiveness. And part of the reason why I believe Paul doesn't mention the word is that Paul isn't focused primarily on forgiveness for forgiveness' sake, but on what forgiveness is to produce and the result, which is fellowship. It's almost like he's pleading for forgiveness, but he's looking past the forgiveness to the result of forgiveness or the product of forgiveness, fellowship. And uh, true forgiveness ought to restore or produce true fellowship, which is clear evidence that forgiveness has taken place, that there's true fellowship. It's also evidence of the forgiveness in the gospel and the effects of salvation, uh, true fellowship, gospel fellowship. Uh, listen to what John says in 1 John 1 and the first few verses of that letter. Um, the Apostle John writing this letter of 1 John to 
um, encourage others in the matter of assurance so that people may know that they are saved, he begins his letter by saying this, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. True forgiveness results in true fellowship. First with God and then with other believers. But in addition to fellowship, forgiveness also produces or results in peace. It's, in a sense, what uh, part of fellowship is, that you have peace with one another. True peace um, is part of what the gospel produces. As Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace. True peace. And uh, I, I commented on this last week and in other previous messages that when Paul writes about peace, um, he has a richer meaning as a Jew. He's thinking of that word for peace, shalom. Shalom, which has a richer and fuller meaning than uh, our definition of peace. We, we oftentimes think of peace as an end to hostilities, that we're no longer at war with one another. We no longer have... Um, uh, something against one another. It's almost like a, a neutral position. There's peace. We're not fighting with one another. But shalom, the, the Jewish term for peace, has a richer and more fuller meaning. It, it, it's often taken to mean completeness or soundness, um, prosperity, a, a fullness of life, peace. And this is, this is what Paul's getting at in Romans 5.1. This is what he means when he talks about peace in all his letters. Peace with God and then peace with others. Uh, you think, uh, you know, even in his, his address, his, his uh, signature greeting, grace and peace to you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Uh, grace and peace. That's the gospel. Grace of God which produces peace. You think that it goes all the way back to um, Isaiah. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who proclaims good news, who announces peace. Paul um, uh, paraphrases that in Romans 10. Even Jesus on his sermon on the mount says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And there's a couple different ways that we can be peacemakers. Uh, first and foremost, by being a mediator. Um, by making peace with somebody. By repenting and, or offering forgiveness. Um, it's also in, in uh, the Matthew's context of the Sermon on the Mount in, in, of proclaiming the gospel. Uh, making peace or, or publishing peace. There's even a saying in our culture, I've made my peace with them. Uh, forgiveness, reconciliation. Uh, there's oneness. I've made my peace. Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, A Biblical Guide to Resolving Personal Conflict, which is a book I'd highly recommend, Ken Sandy, The Peacemaker, he says this, he says, Forgiveness may be described as a decision to make four promises. I will not dwell on this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. And I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. And this is essentially what Paul wants between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus in the church at Colossae, he wants all 
of Onesimus' sins to be put in the past. Is even, uh, you know, uh, God says through uh, David in the psalmist, he, he will remove your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. He, he won't bring these sins up again. He will forget them. He will cast them into the depths of the sea, never to be brought up again. True forgiveness. It, it, it's first uh, uh, shown in the gospel, in salvation, and then we are to emulate that in our relationships with others. And this is what Paul wants. He wants peace. And he acts as a peacemaker. And writing this letter to uh, Philemon and sending Onesimus back to him with the letter, it implies also that Onesimus is repentant. It implies that he's repentant and that he's willing to repent of any sins he had committed against Philemon or to anyone in the church at Colossae. That he's going to be there in person as he delivers this letter. And in writing this letter, Paul is, in a sense, acting as a peacemaker. As a peacemaker. And here in these eight verses, we see Paul's main argument for the letter. This is like the, the, the meat of the letter. The, the, the central part of the letter. This is... Uh, his purpose for writing the letter in verses 8 to 16, to make peace between Philemon and Onesimus. And we see his attempts to make peace in three approaches. There's, there's three approaches in this argument of, from verses 8 to 16, three approaches that Paul makes to uh, garner or establish peace amongst Onesimus, Philemon, and the whole church at Colossae. Three approaches. And first we see Paul's plea for peace. Paul's plea for peace in verses 8 to 11. Therefore, though I have much boldness in Christ to command you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather plead with you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I plead with you for my child Onesimus, of whom I became a father in my chains, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. Paul had um, spent uh, the first seven verses of this letter, the, the first uh, third of this letter, with his greeting, almost in a sense um, commending uh, Philemon for his character, for his service in the church. Um, as I said last week, almost in a sense as if he was buttering him up, getting him ready, and then now he has this plea. Um, the real reason. And he enters into this plea for peace. And Paul's plea for peace with Onesimus is based in really in three things, three foundations. It's first based in Paul's expectation of peace. Paul's expectation of peace, as he says in verse 8, Therefore, though I have much boldness in Christ to command you to do what is proper, that Philemon would do what is proper, what is in accord with Christian living, with Christian character, with the commands of Christ to forgive. Paul expects uh, peace. He expects Onesimus to make his peace with Philemon and Philemon to accept his repentance and to forgive him. He expects a warm welcoming amongst the whole church at Colossae, which meets in Philemon's house. There's an expectation of peace. Paul, um, it's almost as if uh, he's sure, he's sure that Onesimus will be received, and yet he, he puts that caveat in there. Though I have much boldness in Christ to command you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I rather plead with you. I rather plead with you. He wants Philemon to, to freely make peace with Onesimus so that he wouldn't have to be commanded to. And, and yet he expects him to. He expects him to. It's, you know, one, one of the key passages in uh, the Bible, and certainly um, concerning Christian living, certainly uh, Paul explained this, Paul taught this uh, 
to all the disciples, even though he wasn't physically, had not physically been to Colossae, he taught this to others who then taught it to others, and certainly Epaphras taught this, uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, his teaching of the Lord's Prayer, which was uh, memorized. And we see in the Lord's Prayer uh, that, that plea, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus goes on, for if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. This is, this is basic to Christian living, forgiveness. It's a, a basic and key element of the gospel, and Paul expects this to take place. He he expects peace to take place. Second, Paul's plea for peace between Philemon and Onesimus is based in his love for Philemon. In his love for Philemon. He says in verse 9, Yet for love's sake I rather plead with you, since I am such a person as Paul the agent, now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For love's sake, for love's sake, my love for you, my love for Onesimus, my love for the church, and, and even... Almost my, my love for Christ. Because he, he mentions his, in a sense, he alludes to his service to Christ, to the church. He's Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And as he um, says the aged, he, he, he's not just uh, uh, alluding to his uh, chronological age, his physical age, but... Um, as many have said before, it's not the years, it's the mileage. It's the mileage. And there was, Paul had a lot of mileage. <laughs> he did a lot for Christ. And that had an effect on him. It had an effect on his body and his mind and um, everything. You know, he, he was aged in his service for Christ because of his love for Christ. And, and yet... Paul shows here, as he says, yet for love's sake, I'd rather plead with you, that he doesn't want to have to pull rank on Philemon as an apostle because he loves him. And, and yet at the same time, he mentions it. He mentions it. He says, I want you to do what is proper and for love's sake, and yet I'm also able to command you just so that you know. And um, there's, there's a sense of, you know, in... Uh, many of us have, have been in um, different uh, positions of leadership, um, and even if that's just in the home, um, the last thing you really want to do is to lead from the position of authority, be authoritarian, um, but it's there. You know, and sometimes you, know, you have to tell your kids, um, you know, no, you're going to do this because I'm dad, and I said um, but you don't want to have to get to that, that point. Um, and so Paul, in a sense, is, is saying uh, the same thing. He's saying, I, I want you to do what is proper. I expect you to do what is proper. I love you. I love Onesimus. I, I love Christ and his church. And I want peace. Third, Paul's plea for peace between Philemon and Onesimus is based in his love for Onesimus. It says in verse 10, I plead with you for my child, Onesimus, of whom I became a father in my chains, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. It says his child, his child in the faith. And we can see this allusion in other, uh, other writings of Paul, um, speaking about uh, leading someone to Christ and, and almost being their, their spiritual father, their spiritual father, that this, this intimate relationship of having to lead someone to, to faith. He becomes a father to them. And certainly that's how he feels towards Onesimus as an adopted son, this intimate relationship, his child in the faith, his disciple, but also a believer who has been radically transformed by the power of God. That there was a transformation in Onesimus. It wasn't just that Paul had the privilege 
of proclaiming the gospel to Onesimus and, and seeing him come to faith, but he also had the privilege of discipling him and seeing him transformed. Because he says uh, in verse 11, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And there's a, a play on words in Onesimus's name here because Onesimus means useful. It was a common name given to uh, slaves in that day uh, to be useful. Um, but there's also uh, the other Greek term, useless. They're, they're very close. And so there's, in the Greek, there's a play on words here of Onesimus who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. It shows this radical transformation in Onesimus' life, that he's a, a, a completely different person. And so Paul pleads for peace, pleads for peace between Philemon and Onesimus and also the church at Colossae. And it's important because how Philemon responds to Paul's plea and his treatment of Onesimus will have a major impact on the church and on the church's witness in the region. And so there's several reasons for Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to receive him, to restore him, to have peace with him, to um, have true fellowship with him. And, and first is to honor Paul, because Paul's making this plea for peace. He's requesting, he even almost uh, uh, kind of shows his hand towards his apostolic authority. And, and so reason number one for Philemon to forgive Onesimus is to honor Paul. But then second, to honor Christ, because even as Paul tips his hand, he, he says, uh, Though I have much boldness in Christ to command you to do what is proper, meaning not just by way of authority, but by way of Christ's commands, that Philemon is to forgive Onesimus, to honor Paul, but also to honor Christ. Third, to be an example of Christ-likeness. Fourth, to be an example of love, of true love, that uh, is, uh, surpasses uh, worldly definitions. And circumstances. Fifth, and probably primarily, to be an example of forgiveness. To show to the church and everybody else uh, what forgiveness truly looks like. To be an example to the church at Colossae. Seventh, to be an example to Onesimus. And, and finally, to be an example to the watching world. That this was outside of all the norms. This, this would be radical forgiveness. That, that slave that ran away from you, that stole money from you, and, and you're um, receiving him back without punishment and actually forgiving him, restoring him, uh, partnering with him, having fellowship with him. What's going on here? What's happening here? What is this house, this community, this gathering of people that is as loving and as forgiving as this? What, what happened to this person, Onesimus? What happened to this slave? And so there's several reasons for Philemon to heed the Apostle Paul's plea for peace between him and Onesimus. However, just in case Philemon doesn't listen to a direct plea and request for forgiveness, Paul has another approach. So we've seen Paul's plea for peace, and now we see Paul's desire for peace. There's Paul's explicit uh, request for forgiveness and for peace. And now we see Paul's desire for peace. Verses 12 to 14. I have sent him back to you in person. That is my very heart. Whom I intended to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent I did not want to do anything. So that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion but voluntarily. We, we, we see here in these uh, few verses Paul's heart, Paul's desire, his intentions, his, his desire for personal peace. Paul sent him back in person. Paul sent him 
Onesimus back to Philemon, back to this community, back to this household in person with this letter. That these letters, and it would be read probably soon after the letter to Colossae was read, soon after Colossians was read in the midst of the church, they would probably then whip out this letter. Oh, there's a second letter, Philemon, and it's addressed to you, Philemon, and the church in your house. And then they would read that letter, and Onesimus would be standing right there. Could be a very, very awkward situation. Um, Paul sends him back in person. He, he could have just written the letter requesting forgiveness, but he sends Onesimus back in person. And it's, it's one thing to write someone or call them or send them a text message to ask for forgiveness. It's another thing to show up in person, to show up in a person, and especially with a letter from the Apostle Paul. And, you know, there's several ways we can avoid reconciling. We can avoid making peace. We can avoid forgiveness. Or, or several ways we can even uh, fake it. There's, you know, just, you know, a, a short text message or a phone call or, or even a card that just says, well, I'm sorry, and you don't really name the sin. Or, you know, there's certain ways that you could um, just avoid uh, true forgiveness, true reconciliation, true peacemaking. And, you know, though most people know if there's something between them and someone else, um, sometimes we can be self-deceived. We can be harboring bitterness towards someone or unforgiveness or there's something between us and another person um, that after so long of a time we we hide it away. We hide it away deep down in our heart and our mind and we forget about it, especially those that are, we don't interact with often or are uh, physically distant from us. There's several ways we can be uh, self-deceived into uh, thinking there's no issue between us and another person. We can be self-deceived into uh, not realizing that we're harboring bitterness towards someone or there's unforgiveness or there's a lack of reconciliation or we still have work to do to make peace with somebody. So we can be self-deceived. And, you know, it reminds me just by way of illustration, you know, there's, there's a comedian uh, not too long ago and uh, there's even reports that... Um, he professes to be a believer now, but I remember this, this comedian who was made famous by this bit that he would do, and he probably made a lot of money off this bit and this saying, that he said, you might be a blank if, <laughs> and you, so most of you know the, the word, I don't want to say it, but he, um, you might be a blank if, and I just, by way of illustration, I just want to say, you might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if you avoid them. You avoid them at all costs. If, you know, you avoid where they're going to be at, you avoid the times that they're going to be in the place, you, you, you don't go around uh, their cubicle or you work on the other side of the warehouse or the other side of the workplace or the other, other building, um, you know, you sit on the other side of the church, um, you don't call them, you, you avoid them. It may be an indicator of harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if you avoid them. Second, you might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if it's awkward to see them or interact with them. Think about all the people in your past and is there someone that if they walk through the church doors might be an awkward moment? You could be harboring bitterness toward them. You might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if you don't pray for them. If you don't pray for them. Now certainly there's, there's so many people we could pray for and, and hundreds of people and we most likely pray for those who are closest to us and, and those who have immediate needs. But if there's people in our life who we never pray for or we find it hard to pray for, 
chances are you could be harboring bitterness towards them. You could be having an unforgiving attitude towards them. There could be an issue between you and them. Fourth, you might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if you give them an old stank eye when you see them. (laughs) The the, the dirty look, the, the evil look. Or they give you the evil look. And, you know, you typically know when you're giving someone an evil look, this is, but sometimes you're not exactly sure if someone else is giving you an evil look or if they're just having a bad day. And so there is a caveat there. We don't always know what's going on in someone's life, but um, we do know is it if we see somebody and our demeanor changes and it's not good or we... we intentionally change our demeanor toward them and give them a dirty look. It might be an indicator of bitterness, unforgiveness. Fifth, you, you might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if you gossip about them and slander them. That's almost a sure sign. It, it might just be sheer hatred, character assassination. That's what slander is, character assassination. But you might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards someone if you gossip about them and slander them. You might be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness toward them if you, towards someone if you think evil thoughts about them. Or if, worse yet, you are seeking or carrying out vengeance on them. Seeking to or carrying out vengeance on them. If there's not bitterness, there's definitely hatred. One of the one of the key applications of the gospel, and Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 12, about how we are to live as people who are redeemed, who are forgiven. Um, and he starts Romans chapter 12 with, therefore, by the mercies of God, speaking about all the mercies that we have received in the gospel and through God, through Jesus Christ, we are to therefore then live in such a way. And at the end of Romans chapter 12, he, he almost caps it all off by saying, Uh, In verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to be a people that are forgiving, that are gracious, that are kind, that are loving, and even to those who have harmed us, who have injured us, who hate us. We are to pray for our enemies. Bless those who persecute you and pray for them. John MacArthur, in um, his commentary on 2 Corinthians, he says this concerning um, forgiveness and refusing forgiveness. He says this, the price of refusing to forgive is high. Unforgiveness produces hatred, bitterness, animosity, anger, and retribution. It not only clogs up the arteries, but also also the courts with thousands of vengeful lawsuits. Refusing to forgive imprisons people in their past. Unforgiving people keep their pain alive by constantly picking at the open wounds and keeping it from healing. Bitterness takes root in their hearts and defiles them. Anger rages out of control and negative emotions run unchecked. Life is filled with turmoil and strife instead of joy and peace. There's a sense of peace that comes with forgiveness, of relieving that burden, that animosity, that there is something between me and someone else. And even if it's only in our minds, in our hearts and minds. So Paul desires personal peace between Philemon, Onesimus, and the whole church at Colossae. That's why he sends him in person, not just writing the letter, but sends him in person that there would be personal peace. Second, Paul desires for peace in ministry. For peace in ministry, he says in verse 13, whom I intended to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. He desires peace in ministry, peace in conducting ministry uh, uh, amongst 
with, with Onesimus amongst the other disciples, amongst even as Epaphras came to Rome and he'll go back to Colossae eventually. All the people that come and visit Paul and go to and fro and, and the people in different churches and all the relationships between churches, Paul desires for peace in ministry. And, and he desires that, that Onesimus could freely partner with Paul in ministry. That, that there would be freedom. There, there would be a, a peace of mind. Paul desires for personal peace. He desires for peace in ministry. And third, Paul desires for peace of conscience. Peace of conscience amongst all parties. Verse 14, but without your consent, I did not want to do anything, but that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but voluntarily. That there would, would be no, no seed of, of bitterness that would, would grow up, or resentment, or, or discontentment, or disappointment about this whole situation, that, that Philemon would have a peace of conscience. Uh, whether Onesimus came and stayed with him or he would return and be with Paul. Paul desires for peace of conscience for all peoples involved. That Paul would have peace of mind, that Philemon would have peace of mind, and that Onesimus would have peace of mind. Paul is a great peacemaker here. And we see his desire for peace. And there's you know, several motives and reasons to forgive someone. Uh, I listed many, uh, uh, alluded to many, but uh, John MacArthur, he lists some, and some of which um, are pulled directly from Scripture. But uh, the first reason to forgive someone else is that they are image bearers. They're image bearers. And in, in every person no matter how horrible, no matter how wicked, no matter how far they have fallen into sin, they were still a, a person created in the image and likeness of God. They still have a, a, a basic a, a amount of um, dignity or deserve a basic amount of dignity just by nature of being made in the image of God. People are image bearers. Second, uh, reason and motive to forgive someone else is that we are to imitate God. We are to be imitators of God. Uh, uh, Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. God is forgiving. It, it, it's, it's one of his, his key attributes. As he, he spoke to Moses, uh, the Lord, the Lord, uh, a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving transgression, iniquity, and sin. God is forgiving. And we are to imitate him. We are to forgive as he has forgiven us. Third reason and motive to forgive is that we have been forgiven much. We have been forgiven an infinite amount of transgression and sin. So much so that we can't even count it. Fourth. We will not enjoy forgiveness from God unless we forgive others. And Jesus said, if you do not forgive your, your, your brother, your father will not forgive you. We are to forgive. Fifth, you will not experience, benefit from, or enjoy fellowship. There's always going to be that issue unless you forgive, unless you're willing to forgive. Sometimes we, we, we extend, we're willing to extend that olive branch, we're willing to forgive, but that forgiveness is not received. And uh, we've done our part, we've done our part, uh, but forgiveness is, in a sense, a transaction. We need to be willing to forgive, we need to extend forgiveness, but sometimes that forgiveness is not received because there's no repentance. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong against you, um, or you deserve that. <laughs> so, it's like, so, you know, we are to be willing to forgive for the sake of fellowship, for the sake of peace, but sometimes we realize that's not always um, possible. Sixth, 
If you don't forgive, you're usurping God's position as judge and lawgiver. You know, anger, uh, forgiveness, there's this legal aspect to it. They have transgressed us. They, they, they've, they've committed a sin against me. They broke my law. Now, now chances are, uh, more often than not, they've broken God's law. But in refusing to forgive someone, we're almost acting like judge, jury, and executor. Like, no, I will, I will continue to keep them in the, the uh, guilty position. I won't forgive them. And in that sense, in that instance, you're, usur- you're usurping God's position as judge and lawgiver. As if your law, your standards are higher than God's. We need to forgive. Seventh, forgiveness makes you unfit for worship. Unforgiveness, rather. Unforgiveness makes you unfit for worship. If you do not forgive, you're not ready to worship God. Jesus says this in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. And we are to, in a sense, as much as it depends upon us, live at peace with all men, clear all accounts, keep short accounts with one another, be reconciled with one another before we come to worship. It's almost, in a sense, the whole reason why um, Paul, in his instructions concerning uh, the Lord's Supper and communion, tells the Corinthians to examine themselves, to see, to, to, um, to confess any sins to God first and then to one another, that you would come to worship, come to partake in the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience. Eighth is... John MacArthur says the eighth reason to uh, forgive is that the injuries and offenses against you are trials and temptations meant to grow you into Christ's likeness. In, in other words, sometimes he, he, he's saying, sometimes we just, as old saying goes, we just got to take it on the chin. Um, sometimes uh, we realize uh, the, God's providence in the whole matter. Even as Paul talks about um, in 2 Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh, three times I ask for God to remove it from me, and yet he returns and he says, uh, uh, my power is perfected in weakness. And there's a sense that um, we offer forgiveness to others. There's also a sense that we realize that we live in a sin-cursed world and people are going to sin against us and we are to continue to offer forgiveness to them, but sometimes they won't repent and sometimes they will not repent. Sometimes they don't see that they've even sinned against you. And so in those instances, we have to just uh, chalk it up to the providence of God, uh, a trial, a temptation to make us more like Christ who when reviled, did not open his mouth against them. He was like, like a, a, a sheep led to slaughter who was silent. So in these eight verses, we've seen Paul's plea for peace, Paul's desire for peace, and finally, we see Paul's reasoning for peace, or, or rather, his argument for peace, verses 15 to 16. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. We see his final argument, this logical appeal, his reasoning for peace. And it begins with his argument of providence. His argument of providence in verse 15, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while that you would have him back forever. Um, Almost uh, saying there's something else at work here, Philemon. For this reason separated from you. Someone else was was, um, working this out, was orchestrating this event. And we see this 
great providence of God in, in even bringing Onesimus into contact with the Apostle Paul in prison in the city of Rome, that somehow Onesimus, in running away, um, he made it all the way to Rome, and not just to Rome, but to interact with Paul in prison. And you think about the providence of that chance meeting. How, how Onesimus came into contact with, with Paul. He, he had planned to escape and melt into the background of this bustling capital city of Rome. And he, he goes right to the place where he probably didn't want to go. Um, to Paul. And he hears the gospel. We, we see this divine providence. This, this divine um, appointment. I mean, there's a lot of white space here. We don't know all the situation, but to think of, of, of all the potential circumstances leading up to that point and how Onesimus came to the Apostle Paul. And there's also, in a sense, a, a, a providence of God, the great providence of God in Epaphras going to Rome. Epaphras, who had gone to Rome from Colossae to tell uh, Paul about what is happening in Colossae so that then, uh, and, and who knows if, if Epaphras um, came and uh, Paul's like, oh, by the way, um, here's this guy Onesimus. He's from Colossae too. Do you know him? <laughs> and just, uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, the great providence of God in, in Onesimus coming into contact with uh, Paul and then Epaphras going to Rome from Colossae to meet with the Apostle Paul concerning everything that was happening in Colossae, so that then Paul would write this letter to uh, Colossae, to the church that's meeting in Philemon's house, and then, uh, oh, by the way, since I have to send this letter, I think you should go back as well. And here's a letter I'm going to write to go along with you. Um, there's some unfinished business you need to take care of. And so we see Paul's reasoning for peace in his argument of providence. To Philemon, saying, Philemon, something, something greater is happening here. This wasn't just a chance or coincidence. And then we see his argument of regeneration. Verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. That something has happened. Onesimus is a whole new man. He's a new person. He, he's, he's no longer a slave to sin. He's no longer just focused on himself and what he can get out of life and his circumstances, but he's a brand new man. He's a slave to righteousness. He's a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a fellow slave, a fellow prisoner, a fellow worker. He's my child. He's my disciple. I know that something great has happened. He's a brand new man, just like you, Philemon. Just like the rest of the believers in your house, he's a brand new man. And so we see his argument of regeneration. Then third, we see his argument of fellowship. That he's no longer a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Just, just think, Philemon, of about who he was and now who he is and, and, and the possibilities of fellowship, of partnership, of gospel ministry with Onesimus. So please receive him. Please forgive him. Please reconcile to him. Make it right. Make your peace with him and, and the whole church. Jerry Bridges in his... Um, book the practice of godliness he writes this concerning forgiveness he says this he says forgiving costs us our sense of justice we all have this innate sense deep within our souls but it has been perverted by our selfish sinful natures we want to see justice done but the justice we envision satisfies our own interests we must realize that justice has been done God is the only rightful administrator of justice in all of creation, and his justice has been satisfied. In order to forgive our brother, we must be satisfied with God's justice and forego the satisfaction 
of our own. Whatever uh, a punishment that Philemon was thinking of, um, if and when Onesimus would return, he would have to forego that punishment as he forgave Onesimus. And this is, in a sense, what we have to do when we forgive someone else. That, that bitterness that we're harboring, that's, in a sense, a, a sense of, of vengeance um, that we're uh, enacting on someone else. Uh, the harboring of, of bitterness, uh, 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 destroying that relationship of, of uh, shaming them, of uh, uh, avoiding them. It's our uh, enactment of justice. It's what we think is due to them. But in forgiving someone, we have to forgo all sense of retribution, all sense of vengeance, all sense of our own justice, and leave it up to the justice of God that, um, in a sense, we are um, acting like Christ in forgiving someone else. Because he's forgiven us and he bore the punishment in himself. And we don't get to exact that punishment which we had in our minds. We let it go. We forgive. We forget. There's a parable in the Bible which Jesus tells his disciples concerning forgiveness. And I'd like you to turn with me there to Matthew chapter 18. This parable that, you know, and it's, it's initiated by uh, Peter coming up and asking about forgiveness. Matthew 18 and verse 21, Peter comes up to him and asks about forgiveness. And, and, and how we are to uh, practice forgiveness. Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And, and they're, not, they're not doing math here. Uh, seven was, uh, according in Hebrew thought, the, the, the number of completion, according to the, the, the days it took to create the world. It, it's, it's alluding to a, a completion, a, a totality. And so Peter asked up to seven times, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. It's almost as if, um, you know, you heard little kids talk, and you probably say this, infinity times infinity. This is what Jesus is saying, infinity times infinity. And he goes on, and he says, For this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Therefore the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground, was pleading with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. The lesson is that this slave had an impayable debt. This is, you know, uh, if we uh, equated it to um, modern uh, value or, or uh, the dollar, it would be in the billions. Something that he, he, he just, he could not pay back. It was impossible. This impossible debt. And, and yet... 
someone else who owes him a debt that's so much smaller, he's unwilling to forgive. This is is a picture of the gospel. That we've been uh, forgiven of an unpayable debt. Uh, 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 Just a list of sins that would take an eternity to bear the punishment for. And Christ pays for it on the cross. And then he expects us to forgive our brothers and sisters of a smaller, just minute offense. Any offense that they um, commit against us. Because of the greater forgiveness that we have received. And then he goes on and he says, in a sense, paraphrasing, if you're unwilling to forgive... You, you claim to be forgiven of all your sins. You claim to be in Christ. You claim to have um, been born again, to be a Christian. And, and yet, if you don't forgive someone else of, of something so much more minor than what you have been forgiven of, then chances are you're not really forgiven. You're not really forgiven. Because he says in verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. From your hearts. Forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. And they're willing to forgive. That doesn't mean it's always easy. Sometimes in this life there are horrendous, horrendous sins committed against one another. We can think in terms of, you know, uh, adultery, murder, great theft, um, horrendous sins committed against children, and yet we are called to forgive. We're called to forgive because we've been forgiven so much more, so much more. Ken Sandy, once again in his book, The Peacemaker, says this, We take God's forgiveness for granted when we stubbornly withhold our forgiveness from others. In effect, we behave as though others' sins against us are more serious than our sins against God. We're just dwelling on these sins that we have um, that that we have endured, sins against us. We're just dwelling on what another person has done to us, and we forget what we have done to God. We forget that uh, God will judge us. For every careless thought, for every careless deed, he will bring every act into judgment. That um, it's not just our transgressions against God's law, our clear transgressions against his law of uh, do not steal, do not lie, do not commit adultery, do not uh, covet, and, and not just the act, but the thought. We forget that it's not just those transgressions which are sin. But it's the omissions. It's not doing the things that he commands us to. It's not just the sins of commission, but the sins of omission. It's the fact that we haven't loved him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We haven't loved our neighbor as ourself. We haven't been the people he has called us to be. We haven't been what he has designed us to be. And as James said, for whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him is sin. Our sins are so immense, so infinite, so incalculable. Only God can calculate them. And he offers forgiveness for anyone who will repent and believe upon him. Full forgiveness, full redemption, freedom in Christ, uh, exoneration from the punishment of hell. And if we receive that, then we are to forgive And if we have not received that, you need to repent and seek him while he may be found, to call upon him while he is near, because sin must be punished. It must be paid for. And you need forgiveness, and you need to forgive. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson on forgiveness. So central to the gospel, so central to our lives that we are to be a forgiving people. Because we have been forgiven much. 
And yet we know that sometimes it is hard. Sometimes people have sinned against us in horrendous ways. And yet the command stands that we are to forgive. So help us to be a forgiving people. Remind us of what we have been forgiven of in the gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your forgiveness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.